We're studying the book of Acts. We're in chapter 1, as you know. I want to pick up in verse 12 in a moment. Uh, just a reminder of a couple of things, uh, two or three of you that haven't been here uh, last time when we started. The book of Acts is volume 2 of Luke's history. Volume 1 is, of course, the gospel, focusing on Christ. Volume 2 is the book of Acts, which focuses on uh, the disciples of Christ, fulfilling his strategic plan in verse 8 of chapter 1, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, The first section that we dealt with, the first 11 verses, indicates something that I said two weeks ago that is extremely important every time you open the book of Acts. Always remember this. (laughs) Book of Acts is a book that records the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And if if you want to put it this way, the people in the Book of Acts are caught in that transition. That's maybe not the best metaphor to use, but they're they're in that transition. And you have some people saying, well, we're disciples of John the Baptist. We didn't hear this stuff. We've been baptized by Jesus, but not by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are curious phrases. We haven't read any of those yet, but we'll read about some of those in the, in the first couple chapters. That's confusing for you and me. What, what does that mean? You were baptized by John, but not by you know, Because they're caught in. Remember, all this is happening within a matter of a couple years. Jesus is crucified on April the 3rd, AD 33. The events we're studying right now are weeks after that. Not years, weeks after that. Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover when Jesus was crucified. So, I mean, I, 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 want to, I want you to keep remembering that because some of these statements and phrases and even some of the questions don't make a lot of sense to you. I mean, what? What, what does that mean? I was baptized by Jesus, but not by the Holy Spirit. I was baptized in the name of Jesus, but not... What does all that mean? Well, again, it's because this is a time of significant transition. The old covenant has been fulfilled, what we sometimes call the law or the Mosaic covenant in Jesus. It's been superseded, replaced by the new covenant. And the sign of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. And and that's what we're almost there, chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes. Rob. Sometimes the book of Matthew is taught as a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Could, could you maybe contrast the difference between that and the transition between the Old Testament? Well, in a sense, that's true because the most important verb used in the book of Matthew is fulfilled. Matthew, more than any of the other gospels, uses the word fulfilled. It says fulfilled. Fulfilled. 70 quotations from the Old Testament are used in the book of Matthew. And when he quotes or alludes to them, he says, this was fulfilled. And so in that sense, it's, it's part of that transition between 1,400 years of the old covenant being fulfilled in Jesus, which is what Matthew records, and then Acts is picking up, now what? So in a sense, you could say the transition continues. The Gospels focus on Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. Uh, excuse me, the Old Covenant, whereas Acts is kind of answering, well, now, so what? Now what? And that transition continues. And if you don't keep that in the forefront of your thinking as you study the book of Acts, it's confusing. I mean, you know, why are they saying this? Why are they asking this kind of a question? 
it's because of, of what is going on in this immense transition in God's program of redemption. You say that Matthew is a, like a, what they, it's regarding the fulfillment of the prophecies? That's correct. That's correct. All of the, all of the, all of the Old Covenant material and fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament. That's right. If, that, that's why Matthew's so important in that. But each gospel has a particular emphasis, and that's Matthew's major emphasis. Is, is verse 2 uh, <clears throat> reflecting on the, the Trinity here uh, when it says that he, Christ, was taken up? So, in other words, he, he didn't take himself up. It sounds like he was... It's passive. It's passive voice. The verb's in the passive voice there, yes. Okay, and... Uh, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. given order. So is this mm-hmm. is this the Trinity? That's Absolutely. Yeah, there's just verse 1. It's actually verse 1 and 2. You see an emphasis on the Trinitarian nature of God. You know, all Remember, the Trinity is one essence of three yeah. persons mm-hmm. who differ relationally and functionally. And so you see their different function yeah, there right. in, in the cool. plan. Paul makes it very clear in, in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus was resurrected by the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, another emphasis on the Trinitarian difference there, absolutely. He's a sharp man, isn't he? He catches these theological nuances. He's almost as sharp as Woody. (laughs) (laughs) So is this book was written uh, during that time of transition or later on? It was written in the early 60s. About 61, 62. So in, during the time of the transition. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So with the book of Luke himself, when he wrote the first book, was chronologically written before that book? Before the book. Yeah, not too much earlier, but yes, it would have been written before Acts, correct. <coughs> Even writing itself, right? Even what? The writing itself, chronologically. Yes. The book of Luke, he wrote the first book first about Jesus and his Luke, right. experience Luke's. with that, and then the book of Acts followed that. That's correct. That's right. And that was all of it during the time of the transition. Because yes. Luke did not write the book during the life of Jesus, right? No, it not not during the life of Jesus, but after. But after. after mm-hmm. that That's correct. Verse 12. Now remembering, uh, maybe I should even summarize this, remembering <laughs> what occurred in the first 11 verses, that the disciples are convinced now that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has occurred, that he's going to establish the kingdom. Remember? They asked him the question, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And, I mean, that's a legitimate question. I mean, it really is. And they're thinking uh, the literal Davidic kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament and all that, so that's a very legitimate question. But Jesus' response is instructive. He says, guys, those times and epochs are not for you to know. Here's your assignment, verse 8. You're not going. That doesn't mean I'm not going to establish the kingdom. He doesn't say, no, I'm not going to ever set up the kingdom. That's not what he says. He says, those times, those epochs, the Father's fixed. Don't worry about that. Here's your assignment. You shall receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the strategic plan of Jesus until he returns. You and I are in phase four. We're still taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're still in that phase. And then you have, then again, what follows until you get to verse 11, is another, several of these in the gospels and in Acts of the account of Jesus' ascension. 
as he goes back to the Father. And then the, the, the two witnesses, presumably they're angels, uh, you know, kind of chastise them. Why are you looking? And the, the Greek there is, why are you gazing into heaven? Because he who went up will come in exactly the same way, meaning literal, bodily, and on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 14, Revelation 19, and many other places uh, make that clear. So now, the ascent, again, what Luke is doing, the synopsis, the ascension is over. Now what? And so you read in verse 12, then they, uh, meaning the 11, remember Judas has committed suicide, returned to Jerusalem, and they're doing that in obedience to Jesus. He said, go back to Jerusalem. Go, and the witnesses said, go back to Jerusalem, which is near Jerusalem, the, the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day journey. And those are, you know, I think you know this, but the Mount of Olives is to the east of the old city of Jerusalem. There's a big valley, deep valley of Kidron. But anyway, so it's about a Sabbath day journey from the Mount of Olives into the old city. And that's all it's telling us. And when they entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. And then Luke, in, in the next section, verse 13, lists the eleven. This is one of, and I don't want to dwell on this, this isn't a really big deal, but just a comment. This is one of the numerous listing of the disciples. There are a variety of these in the Gospels. And now here in the Gospel, or in the book of Acts. One comment about those listings. Every one of the listings, Peter is always listed first. Always. There are no exceptions. The other <coughs> groupings of the remaining disciples, it be ten, uh, Peter's one and the other ten, varies a little bit. But for the most part, you have an account here of many of the listing of the disciples. Yeah, Fred? They, they mentioned the upper room. Now, was this a common that uh, upper rooms were places where people <clears throat> congregated and lived, yeah. or was this the upper room? That's a great question, and honestly, among the expositors, there's not there's not a consensus on that. Because as we're going to read in the next chapter, uh, or the next paragraph, I mean, 120 people gather in this upper room. So <clears throat> whether this is <coughs> the upper room where Jesus frequently met in those last days with his disciples, or whether this is a larger, and you, you're correct, this was not an uncommon thing uh, to do. They may have rented it, more than likely they did, a larger area in which to congregate. In, you still see that to some extent in Jerusalem today, but some of the buildings, you'd have the base building, which was at street level, then you'd have a, another tier, which was much larger, where uh, gatherings would occur. You could rent those halls. Often traveling teachers or traveling philosophers would rent those halls. Now, I'm going way beyond what's important <laughs> for, for you guys, but it is, that is an issue. It is, pro my opinion, not that that's terribly important, but this is probably not the upper room where Jesus met in those last week, what we call Holy Week, with the disciples. A larger room. Come across the phrase, uh, a Sabbath day's journey elsewhere in the Bible. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Is that one day? Is it seven days? Uh, it's about uh, six tenths of a mile is what a Sabbath day journey is. It is stipulated in, in how they interpret the law codes in Deuteronomy. When you're in Israel, um, I've been there many times, 
you see they have marked along the street what a Sabbath day journey is. They have it marked by vertical poles with a line that connects them. So you know exactly how far a Sabbath day journey is. And while Luke is telling us exactly, it's very actually it's precise. From the Mount of Olives into Mount Zion, which would be on the south side, is about six-tenths of a mile. He's just being very precise, which matches with what we know about the geography of Jerusalem. I'm glad you guys are interested in this minutia. I mean, I like to talk about that, but if you, I'm not going to talk about it unless you raise the questions. Now, verse 14 is, is kind of a, Luke does this a lot. You'll see it throughout the book. He gives us a summary of what is this early group of believers, what are they like? What are they doing? What are their priorities? Let's look at this. All of these were with one accord. There's unity. These, this is the 11. And it says they are devoting themselves to prayer. Okay? So that tells us piety and devotion is important to them. But then I want you to notice something else. And Luke loves to do this. He does it consistently. He focuses on how many women get involved in this ministry. Together with the women. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now let's look at those those three phrases. Together with the women. One of the things, and I'm pretty sure you know this, but Luke in his gospel emphasizes this more than Matthew, Mark, and John do. The role women played in Jesus' public ministry. If you look at the the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 8, the major financial supporters of Jesus' public ministry were women. And one of them was named Joanna. It was the wife of a very wealthy, uh, aristocratic uh, uh, official in, in Jerusalem. And you may not know this, but my daughter is named Joanna. Because it's a Hebrew name, but it also, we named it because of this very influential woman who was a follower of Jesus and a major financial supporter of Jesus. And the women who gave testimony and witness to the resurrection of Jesus are numerous. Mary, there are several Marys, including Mary Magdalene, and of course Mary the mother of Jesus, and Mary others, as well as a number of other women that are named and some are not named. Luke goes out of his way to stress that women are joining the movement. This isn't a patriarchal movement. This is a movement, as you see in Galatians 3.28, that involves women and men. In Christ is not a male, female, slave, free, Jew or Gentile. At the cross, everybody's equal. And Luke stresses that. And then Luke also mentions in this verse his brothers, the brothers of Jesus. If you go to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, you see four brothers of Jesus named. You go to the end of Matthew 13, you see several of the brothers of Jesus named. The most famous are the ones you know, James, who writes an epistle, and Jude, who writes another epistle. So all this, all Luke is telling us is you have the original 11 plus a larger group that involves significant women plus the brothers of Jesus. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, James, the brother of Jesus, does not come to faith in him until after the resurrection. 
It was the resurrection of Jesus that convinced James that his brother is who he said he was. I, I hope you're following what I just said. So Luke is, Luke, these little snippets. I mean, I wish he'd tell us a lot more about this. None of you agree, but it, you know, that just tells a lot more. And here, it's just like a one little verse summary of, man, this is a remarkable thing going on here. There's the eleven who are doing what God, uh, what Jesus has said, and go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Father's promise, meaning the Holy Spirit. And they do that. Who joins them? A whole group of women that were the followers of Jesus, plus Mary, his mother, plus his brothers. So this group is growing in terms, and James is going to become, as you know, the leader of the New Testament church in Jerusalem, as you know. Yeah, Woody. Was James at the crucifixion? No. Uh, well, but he knew of it, and so when the re- after the resurrection, he was able to see his brother Jesus. And his brother, and he met with James. That's right. And so there isn't evidence, he may have been, but there isn't evidence from the New Testament anyway that James was was with Jesus. I mean, was at Jesus' resurrection. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 again that he meets James, and that's when James comes to faith, believes that what his brother said he was, who he said he was, and all that, that he believed it. So, James, the founder of the church in Jerusalem, is James the brother of Jesus? Well, it wouldn't be right to say he's the founder. He would emerge as as one of, as one of the leaders. And how many brothers were there for Jesus? There are four recorded brothers of Jesus. There may have been more, but there are four. In Mark 6, verse 3 is where you see that. And why would Luke mention them... <clears throat> You know, in the way that uh, the, the writing, it seems like the 12th or, or the 11th are the, the leaders or the true believers. And then he mentions after that, women seems like, you know, less of the rest. So why is men- mentioning the brother of Jesus together with the women? Or did he even intend to put them uh, an hierarchy? Well, I don't think he's, ra- I don't think he's ranking anybody them. here. I don't think he's creating a hierarchy here. All he's saying, because the stress of the gospel is the equality of the gospel. It doesn't create a hierarchy or some super spiritual group of people. I think all Luke is saying is that a significant number of people in the very, and you know, let's, let's call this the early church, <laughs> but a very significant number of people are joining this. Important people. Because if you go back to Luke 8, some of those women that were the financial supporters of Jesus' ministry, they are important women. They're ma- a couple are married to very important men. So it's just all Luke is doing, and again, there's, he's not making any value judgment. He's just stating something. It's a historical app. This is what's happening. <laughs> those are the Christians. This is, this is where the whole body of believers at that time, this is, this is it, right? The nucleus. I... I yeah, that's, that's a good word, the nucleus. I'm not sure, I would not say there aren't others, because we're going to read in verse 16, or 15, 120 people. So we don't know who those are, the 120 people, we don't know who the rest of those are. It's going to, one of the things you see in, 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 in Acts is it goes 11, then 120, then 3,000 are added, and another 5,000, it just keeps growing. And by the time you're in... Uh, 
<coughs> By the time you're in Acts 4, you, you have, you've at least 10,000 people in Jerusalem that have believed in Christ. At least. What was the population of Jerusalem about that time? Do we know? have any idea? Well, uh, if... You, you would have to exclude all the feast days because that's the yeah. feast days. People are coming in. There's so many of those. But probably the, the core population of the old city of Jerusalem at this time would have been about 60,000. 12%. Yeah. But, I mean, I mean that's, but, but right. there were so many people coming in and out that <clears throat> it could house a much larger number. But, and that is an estimate. There's no, not certainty on that. Man, you guys are loaded. These great questions. This, this keep... two weeks off. <laughs> 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 going on, going on. <laughs> just one, one last one. So when James wrote, and he wrote one of the first books. He did. Then, and with his conversion, and it's been said that, that he wrote in a fashion called tirade, mm-hmm. and he was... I'm obviously very visibly upset with the what was going on with the with the Jewish population at that mm-hmm. time and then other believers and that's so maybe that's where he got all his zeal and, and could be, yeah, yeah. That could be. Verse twelve. I mean verse fifteen. In those days, meaning immediately after the ascension, as they're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter stood up among the brothers. And then Luke puts it, most of your translation will have it a parenthesis, the company of persons was in all about 120. So what's Luke doing? All he's telling us is the number of people who are, let's use the phrase we use today, the number of people who are Christ followers is growing. It's about 120. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, Concerning Judas. Now, verse 16 is quite a remarkable sentence. Because what Peter is doing is he uses a very important verb, fulfilled. The scripture had to be fulfilled. What scripture? The Old Testament. Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy that the Holy Spirit inspired through David. Did you see that? Please tell me you saw that. Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So as you're going to see, and we'll get to that in just a minute, in verse 20, he's going to quote from two Psalms. And what he is telling us is those two Psalms were written by David and were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So verse, I'm getting kind of animated here, but verse 16 is another one. They're just peppered throughout the New Testament. Verse 16 is a very important verse for the inspiration of Scripture. David just didn't sit down, well, I think I'm going to write about this someday. All he's saying here, Luke, that is, all Luke is saying is, David was inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write what I'm about to quote. And what he's doing, he, Peter, is doing, is tying this scripture into replacing Judas. So you, we learn a couple of things here. 
Peter was an avid student of the Old Testament. He's not some illiterate fisherman who doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. He's not illiterate. He knew at least three languages. His writing in 1 Peter and 2 Peter is a highly polished Greek. But it, more importantly, it helps us to understand something. He may not have been trained in a rabbinic school of the first century like Paul was, but he's not dumb, and he knows the Old Testament as well as Paul does. And so he quotes from it to establish the authority, that's the second key point, for what they need to do. See, what Peter is doing here is he's appealing to the authority of inspired scripture to determine what do we do now. So he's appealing to the authority of scripture to determine that. That's important for you and me. And so he just wraps it around this language of verse 16, wraps it around this language of inspiration. And he says, in these two psalms I'm about to quote, David was talking about Judas. Now, did David know he was talking about Judas? That's doubtful. But the Holy Spirit inspired it, and now Peter is saying we need to take as guidance what Peter, sorry, what David says to help us determine how do we go about replacing Judas. Now, those last three sentences I just uttered, do they make sense to you? So it says something to us about the knowledge and understanding of this man, Peter, of the Old Testament. This guy knew it. He really knew it. And two, that as we should do, and certainly he's doing, he's using the authority of Scripture to determine and guide decision-making. And their decision they need is, do we replace Judas? And how do we go about doing that? And that's what this paragraph's all about. Okay? Yeah. So <clears throat> you need to take away from this that the Holy Spirit just didn't pop up at Pentecost. That's right. He's very Spirit. active in the old mm-hmm. creation. Genesis. <laughs> all over the way. Exactly. Exactly. Jim. So the, the verses that Peter's talking about, we're going to read in verse 20. Correct. They seem so cryptic to me that I don't know how, I mean, you'd have to have some you know, spiritual insight to understand that he's talking about Judas here. Exactly. You, you would. And that's what, uh, that's exactly what Peter is claiming. The spiritual insight based on the authority of God's word, Old Testament, to determine what do we do next. You're right. And that's a great word, cryptic. It is. I mean, I read that and I'm saying, man, if I'm reading that in 1000 B.C., which is when David wrote it, I would never think of Judas here. <laughs> but Peter is, Peter is saying that we can use this as the guide for what we do next. Was there some context in Psalms that made it clear or evident or is it... Especially in especially Psalm sixty nine, yes, Psalm one hundred nine. But Psalm one hundred nine, let us take let another take his office. Okay, the scriptures say, let another take his office. We apply that to Judas. Okay, we'll replace Judas, based on the authority of Psalm one hundred nine. All ties together, don't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, I just always find how remarkable how 
these early leaders of the church are so dependent on the Old Testament scriptures. And they're going back always. And that just shows the continuity between the two. And how important it is to always study both. And, and that's what we've tried to do here in this class over the years. Now, what we see in verse um, 17 and so on is just a summary of Judas. Uh, I, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on that. It's just a summary. He explains it. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Okay, Judas, not a, he's one of the twelve. He had a share in this ministry. And as you know, among other things, one of his responsibilities was the treasurer. He kept the purse. And so, among other things, that was Judas. Okay, now verse 18. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward for his wickedness, referring to the bribe he got from the Pharisees to betray Jesus. And then what happened? Headlong, he burst in the middle and his bowels gushed out. Okay, that's his suicide that he committed. If you ever go to Jerusalem on the west side, there are three ranges and three valleys that go through on the west side of the old city of Jerusalem, there's a deep valley. That valley is the valley where traditionally historically Judas committed suicide. Hung himself out over, he, it split, and he gushed out on the rocks below, which is what Luke is summarizing here. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That field is called, it's Aramaic, Akadema, which means field of blood. So what those of us just summarize Judas. He was in our ministry. He betrayed Jesus, bought a field, committed to kill himself. Now, verse 20, for it was written in the book of Psalms. So the little parenthesis, little historical bunny trails over. Now he's back to quoting. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it. Psalm 69, verse 15. That's exactly right. And... Let another take his office. Psalm 109, verse 8. So what's Peter doing? This field of blood, which has become desolate, and no one dwells in it. That's Judas, referring to what he did. And let another take his office. That's guidance for us. Now what do we do? Replace him. And so the very first word of verse 21 in most of your translation is going to be something like so, or therefore, or then. So what they do is they act on it. So... Like he says, I'm going to nominate these two. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went out and among us, beginning from his baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So verse 21 and 22 are the two criteria for the replacement. Two qualifications for the replacement. What's qualification number one? He had to be with us. He had to be a part of the ministry of Jesus. It's qualification number two. He has to be a witness of the resurrection. Now, they're not difficult criteria, but they make sense, so, so, so to speak. Not an outsider, but somebody who was with Jesus and was part of the public ministry. Now, remember, Jesus had the 12, and then he had the 70. Right? You do remember that, don't you? 
I mean, he had 12, his inner circle, actually he had an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, then the 12, the, including the larger circle, then there were 70 others that he had discipled and sent out. The, the, we know without doubt that Matthias was one of the 70. What, we what know book, that. What book did that come from, the 70 then? Uh, well, that's in Matthew and in Luke, okay. both. I can't give you the exact reference, but the larger ministry of Christ. And so those two criteria are there. He had to be a part of our ministry, and he had to be a witness of the resurrection. Now, that makes sense. I mean, you you want someone, because that's the most decisive event in Christ's ministry, is the resurrection. The cross and the death and burial, but it's the resurrection, because that's the victory, death, penalties paid, the price has been paid, and so on. And so... They take those two criteria. Now, Luke doesn't give us a detail here. Undoubtedly, this didn't happen in the next 10 minutes. So they put forward two people. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justus. Barsabbas is from a Hebrew word which means son of Sabbath, son of the Sabbath. Their tradition, tradition says that he later would be a church leader who would swallow snake poison and things like that. The second one, Matthias, we know more about him. His name means gift of God. He is one of the 70. Later church history, in other words, church tradition, tells us he would become a very significant leader in the African church and would be martyred in Ethiopia. Matthias. Matthias. Mm-hmm. Now again, this is church. This is beyond what the, the scriptures say. This is, no, church, the church historian, early church historians of the second, first, and second century, and so on. But I'm just so we think there's there's evidence of some of these guys. So you have two: Joseph called Barsabbas and Matthias. Verse twenty-four, and they prayed and said. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. Okay? Two things. How do you go about making the decision? You pray about it. You do all your homework. You set up the strategy. You set up the details. You pray about it, but you leave the results to God. Okay, Lord, we're trusting you. We have two. We're presenting these two. They meet the criteria. They have all, they've met them all. Their resumes are in place. Their experience is in place. We've checked out all their references. You're supposed to be laughing at that because it's not in the scriptures. But um, they went through the due diligence. They're praying, now, Lord, it's up to you. And so they cast lots. Now, that's a very, that sounds a little funny to you and me, but that's a very normal way they did things in the ancient world. It's a very normal way. So they cast lots. Probably it was a little, uh, little piece of ostraca. That's normally what it was, a little broken piece of pottery. And they wrote one name on it and another name. When we were back east, uh, her Peggy's mother's jewelry, which there wasn't much left, but they were dividing it up. And so I was the person that was pulling it out of the hat. They put the names and, you know, I pulled them out. And little pieces of ostrich, a broken piece of pottery with a piece of paper. 
And so then and it says, and he was numbered with the 11. It fell on Messiah. And by the way, numbered there, enrolled is another way to translate that. Enrolled with the 11 apostles. So who replaces Judas? Matthias. Matthias. Now it's really interesting. As the other disciples are martyred for the next several years, they don't replace them. But they do replace Judas because of the inner core of 12. Um, There's two criteria. One of them is he has to be with them from the very beginning. Be a part of the public ministry, yeah. And another one to... Have witnessed the resurrection. Is it one or the other, or it has to be both? Because when, when you look at Paul... He did not have both. He had one. So how both? Say that again. What was that? Who had? Paul. Paul. Later on, mm-hmm. he did not have both criteria. He had one of them. So. Well, all all Luke is doing is this specific item of replacing Judas. These are the criteria. It's not talking about anybody else or anyone else. Now, Paul will always make the claim because he has to, he defends himself many times in the uh, first chapter, first two chapters of Galatians and the introductory parts of Second Corinthians. Um, Paul has to defend his apostleship, and he always says, "I met the resurrected Christ." Therefore, I'm an apostle. Now, and, and don't forget. And you're asking me a question that has a long bunny trail to it. Apostolon, the Greek word for apostle, doesn't only mean you know, sent out. It also means commissioned with authority. And so Paul can always claim that. I met the resurrected Christ, and I was commissioned by him. And again, Acts 9, Acts 22, Paul details that he not only met the resurrected Christ, he was commissioned by him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. <clears throat> okay? Because remember, Paul's apostleship is not replacing Judas. It's a unique apostleship. All they're doing here is replacing Judas. That's all they're doing. Because Barnabas is going to be called an apostle. Mark's going to be called an apostle. And it just what does that mean? It means they are commissioned with a very specific job to do. This is replacing Judas, period. That's all it is. Well, we have one chapter down, 27 to go. <laughs> Any other questions before we track into chapter? Mark was called an apostle? I'm sorry? Mark was considered an apostle? Ma- Mark would be later called an apostle. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty broad number of people uh, that are called an apostle. Dorcas is a woman. Uh, we'll read about her coming. She'll be called a disciple of Christ. Some interesting labels here. All right, can we move into chapter two? Just a quick question. We're not moving into chapter two. All right. <laughs> Judas hang himself up. Why did he burst his vows out? Well, the sense the sense is uh, if you go there, you can see it. I mean, it's he, he it's over a very it's a very steep cliff. And you know he, however he hung himself, but it broke, and when he crashes on the rocks, and it just, I mean, it just splits open his body and the bowels, etc. Rather gruesome way to talk about it. But. Is that a problem for suicide? 
you said that's where Jews went to commit suicide. That was, that's confusing to me. Okay, and I'm not sure I understand your question. You were saying that where he hung himself, that's where, that valley is where Jews went to commit suicide. That's where Judas went to commit suicide. No, no, you maybe just, no, no, no. That you're, you're, you're right. I mean, generally speaking, and the, the law is very, very much frowns upon suicide and condemns it pretty much. But, of course, Judas is, <laughs> the guilt he feels for <coughs> betraying Jesus is pretty overwhelming. Chapter 2. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Luke is giving the temporal emphasis now. He wants the chronology to, pretty, to be pretty tight here. I want you to remember just a couple of things. Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. Penta, the prefix, means 50. And so this is 50 days after Passover. This is a Jewish holiday. Right? What is called Pentecost is one of the there are quite a few of these. This is like a harvest festival. I guess that would be the best way to speak of it. And um, 50 days after Passover. And so that's important because remember, Jesus Christ is crucified on Good Friday, what we call Good Friday, which was Passover. I mean, you know that, right? And generally the sense is at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, that is when Jesus died. He hung on the cross about six hours, roughly, from 9 a.m. to about 3 p.m. or so, and, and died. And so uh, none of that happens just coincidentally. That's part of this immensely specific plan of God. It really is. And the detail, when you study it, just objectively, the details to me are overwhelming. How true this is. This doesn't just happen. And that was Passover. That's correct. And so 50 days after that is the annual harvest, it's called Harvest Festival, that's called Pentecost. <coughs> so there's a significant number of Jews in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Now, those last couple sentences, they all make sense to you? What happens, you know, the, the Passover signifies the Passover of the Red Sea, right? Mm-hmm. So what the Pentecost originally signifies before it became the harvest season? Well, there are a whole series, <coughs> whole series of these. I have, I may have passed this out when we were in, what did we study before this? I forget. Okay, then what did we study before? Oh, yeah. When we were in Exodus, when we were in Exodus, I passed out, I'm pretty sure I did, it's a circle, the, the right. annual festivals. Right. The uh, according to the Jewish months. And Pentecost is one of those, or many of those. There are just numerous of these, Mark. There, this is a harvest tied to the agricultural cycle. I mean, ancient Israel was an agricultural society. So, I mean, it's just one of the many harvest festivals that were a part of the annual celebrations and feasts of, of, of the nation of Israel. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's... It's not tied specifically to something coming out of Egypt. It's tied with the established festival. Just a whole series of them. You go around that circle. You see them. They were all together in one place. Now, the word all. To whom is that referring? Jews. 
Well, because of what's going to follow, it's not just the 11. It's the 120. The, no, the all, they were all together in one place. The all is 120 people. What we read about uh, in a couple of verses earlier, uh, where was that? Verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 15. You'll, you'll see why it's important in just a minute. Now, question. Of those meeting in the upper room in Jerusalem, would there have been women there? We've already learned that's where a significant number of women that joined that circle of the 11. That's important. I'm, just, I'm not doing anything other than just treating this historical material the way Luke wants us to treat it. This isn't only men. Women are here too. And they are from every nation. That's correct. And we're going we're gonna to read in the next passage. Well, I shouldn't say the next passage. The next section as we start with verse 9. Luke is very specific, and I don't know if I'll get to that today. I won't get to it. I don't have enough time. But these are the Hellenistic Jews of the diaspora. Now, that's a phrase. You're going, you, you will be delighted that you know what that means. The Hellenistic Jews of the diaspora. Because remember, the Jew, even by this time, where again, this is A.D. 33, um, 50 days after the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. So uh, the Jews had been conquered and dispersed multiple times. Remember in 722, they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire and dispersed. 586 B.C., they were conquered and dispersed. And then they were under the control, because when they come back in 539 B.C., they never rule themselves. You know, they're always under the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and here they're under the Roman Empire. I'm saying all that because they're dispersed. And what, what Luke is going to tell us here in verse 8 and following is these Jews of the diaspora who have spread out throughout the Mediterranean world, they come back to Jerusalem for these feast days. And so he tells us where they're all from. Some of them had been spread out for several hundred years, but they come back to Jerusalem. And on Pentecost, they're going to hear the gospel in their language. And they're going to respond. 3,000 of them are going to respond. So, I mean, just Luke is setting us up in verse 1, setting us up for the miracle called Pentecost, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is the fulfillment of Zechariah 31, Ezekiel 36 and 37, and Joel chapter 2. It's a remarkable fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And they're gathered in one place. That one place would be the presumably the upper room. And suddenly there came from heaven. Now, it is very important that you note these are similes. Now, as you dust off the cobwebs of your mind from English grammar, do you remember what a simile is? You're comparing something, and you use the word like or as. It is as bright as the sun. That's a simile. Did I just utter something that makes sense? You try to say it's so bright. Well, what do you compare? Well, it's as bright as the sun. 
It isn't as bright as the sun. You'd be a smoldering cinder if it were. But you're just trying to make <coughs> a statement <coughs> to drive home something that's compared. Oh, I understand that. So what Luke says is, and there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Following? That's a simile. It isn't a mighty rushing wind, but it's a loud sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested upon each one of them, presumably hovering over their head. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me stop there for a minute. So you have these two um, objective, demonstrable signs of power from heaven. A sound like a mighty rushing wind, and tongues like or as fire hovering over their head. And as those two things occur... They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that little phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, is a key New Testament phrase. I'll say that again. That phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, is a key New Testament phrase. The most important reference to it is Ephesians 5.18. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be under (coughs) the Spirit's control. So they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, again, the importance of that is you have these two demonstrable acts of power from heaven with the result these 120 people, roughly 120 people in the upper room are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're under the Spirit's control. And what starts to happen? They do something that's not natural. They do something that's not common. They do something that's not expected. They begin to speak in other tongues. And the word for tongue there is glossa. Now, I don't usually do this, but I'm doing it here because I I just want to... This is an important term that we're going to see. I'm almost out of time for today. But we're going to see next week. Uh, No, that's right. We don't meet next week. Uh, In two weeks. Because we want to put this together with verse 8. Because what this is, verse, what is that, 2? Um, no, not verse 2, it's verse 4. We want to connect this with verse 8, which says the glossa are languages. And the Greek word there, as you'll see, is dialectos. What word do we get from that in English? Dialect. So, <clears throat> This isn't just gibberish. They are speaking known languages. And as Luke moves on in his narrative, he's going to tell us where are all these people in Jerusalem from that are speaking different languages. He's going to tell us. They're spread out all over the Mediterranean Sea. (coughs) They're in Jerusalem. And the gospel is being proclaimed to them in the language that they speak. And that's the miracle. Where did this come from? Because these individuals are under the control of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak as 
The Spirit gave them utterance. This is a Holy Spirit inspired, Holy Spirit controlled, Holy Spirit sovereign act. The miracle of Pentecost. Got it? All right. I got to quit. <laughs> he got me a fresh cup of coffee and I have 30 seconds to drink it. <clears throat> All right. Uh, now, we covered a lot of territory this morning, and there were a lot of really good questions. Are you, you kind of with me? I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated that we have to wait two weeks to pick this up, but when our founders agreed on <clears throat> the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, that's when they voted on it. They didn't sign it to August 3rd, August 2nd, excuse me. But um, they, they did something. By the way, you know this, don't you? Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both died on July 4th, 1826. Do you have any idea what that did for the country? This was like, oh my goodness. God is in, he takes one of the two key founders of this nation home on the same day. John Adams died in the afternoon of July 4th, 1826, and he said, Jefferson still lives. But he didn't. Jefferson died that morning. It's just a remarkable part of, of the heritage of this country. I don't know why I told you all that, but... Um, they were divided, they were fighting. Well, by the, end of their, by the end of their life, they weren't anymore. They, they, had, uh, you know, they had really reconciled their differences, and they were writing back and forth, back and forth. That's, well, while they were setting up the government, they, they really did it as establishment. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were not... In those years, the Constitutional Convention and, the very, and in the election of 1800, they were opponents. And it was a very a vitriolic campaign. It's horrible. You think our campaigns are bad? Oh, look, I got to quit. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we've covered some very important material in the book of Acts and the New Testament. These are foundational as that transition from the old to the new is ensuing. And these individuals, these early apostles, caught in that, in the middle of that, trying to figure out everything that's going on. Peter, the stable authority, quoting from the Old Testament, drawing on the authority of the Old Testament to guide them in what to do, and replacing Judas and preparing for Pentecost, which we just started. Magnificent chapter, incredible amount of doctrine and theology, quoting from the Old Testament, tying a lot of threads together, which helps us to understand that Peter, the major spokesman, really understood what was going on and became the guide and stable leader for us and the rest of the church, even for Luke. Peter was one of his major sources and helps us to understand what is going on in these early days after Jesus went back to the Father. It's really important for us to understand that. I hope these guys are getting it. It's magnificent to try to pull all this together. Very few Christians can really do this in a, in a meaningful way. And these guys are really showing it matters to them. It's important to them. Bless them now. Dismiss us with your blessing as we go our separate ways. And next Wednesday, when we celebrate the 4th, it's an important holiday. It says something about our nation uh, when official sort of declaration of independence was, was offered and began uh, the progress of a new nation, building a new republic in a new land. And we thank you that we are a part of that. What a privilege it is to live in this nation, to raise our kids in this nation. And we ask you to bless us. We, we celebrate that next Wednesday. So dismiss us now as we go our separate ways. Look forward to regathering in two weeks in Christ's name. Amen.